Uh, did such a great job. I, again, I was like Pastor Jaden, where I was able to poke my head in a couple times uh, this week. Uh, Chris was uh, kind of the director taking over for the camp for the last two weeks. And Pastor Charity, if you remember Pastor Charity, who filled in during Pastor Crystal's maternity leave for children's ministry, she was uh, the speaker for the camps for the last two weeks. So we really want to give a, just a special thank you to both of them who put in a lot of hours and effort and all the team that did that. Again, just church, if we can, one more time, just by applause, just a thank you for all those who volunteered. Uh, good morning. If you are new here, either in person or online, my name is Joel. I am the discipleship pastor here at Eaglemont. And over the next uh, 25, 30 minutes, we're going to dive into God's Word as we're going to be continuing our series that we've been doing on the Lord's Prayer. So if you have a Bible, I want you to just to open it up to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Hopefully at this point, if you've been with us through the summer, it's getting a little earmarked and that page is getting a little worn. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 uh, again, we're going to read through verses 9 to 13, and I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version, which we've been doing through the summer as a, uh, a version that's a little older in language, but sometimes it's a little easier to memorize than some of the more modern language versions. So I'm going to read this through again here. If you want to just read along with me, Matthew 6, 9 to 13, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Lord, would you open our hearts to receive from your word and that it has already been spoken and prayed today. Our desire is to meet with you. So would you meet with us today, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this morning, we're going to be focusing on the portion of the Lord's Prayer, which is the prayer that Jesus gave to instruct and teach his disciples how to pray. Uh, we're going to be focusing on the line, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The topic of evil, perhaps some of you are questioning, how can we go from talking about children's camping, working with children, and evil? And for some of you parents, you see the direct correlation to this morning's message. That was not done on purpose, that was just a joke. None of your kids are evil. Um, but in the previous parts of the Lord's Prayer that we've actually been going through this summer, we've been led to seek God's providence as we prayed, your will be done, his provision as we ask for our daily bread, and his pardon to forgive our debts. Today, Jesus instructs us to pray for God's protection. So we're gonna break this down. I found throughout the Lord's Prayer, this line in particular led me with more questions than any other part of the Lord's Prayer. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do not lead us into temptation. Now, what exactly is temptation? Very simply, Webster's Dictionary says it's the act of tempting or the state of being tempted, especially to do evil. If, uh, for some of you who are already hungry this morning, if, if I had uh, Pastor Jaden in the back baking a fresh apple pie, and we were talking about today was our day of prayer and fasting, and no one was allowed to eat today, but you smelt that apple pie aroma just coming from the kitchen, you'd be tempted to want to eat it, 
temptation. Temptation itself is not sin. Oftentimes people get confused with that. Correlating that temptation is sin. Temptation itself is not sin. And we know this because we see that Jesus himself was tempted. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, we see Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. But temptation, even though it's not sin, obviously can be something that leads us to sin. So I ask you this morning, what are the temptations you deal with in your life? What tempts you to do wrong? What tempts you to do what you know you shouldn't do? Now, temptation, just to be clear, isn't just doing wrong. But temptation, I think that's too simple. Temptation is something that leads you to do what is the opposite or against God's best for you. If you want to know something very simple in your life that I believe probably almost every person in this building and watching online this morning has in their life, that is a form of temptation. It's this little gadget that most of you have in your pocket with you. Temptation isn't necessarily just something that is quote-unquote evil. Temptation is something that leads us against what God's best is for us. Many of us, by the temptation of this, don't necessarily live a life that's present with our spouses, with our kids. When it's time to pray, we don't have the time or focus to do so. It's a distraction. What are the temptations in your life? We are to pray, do not lead us into temptation. I want to pause for a second here because do not lead us. This statement right here implies that God is, in fact, supposed to be leading us somewhere. This very part of the prayer implies that we are inviting, uh, inviting and living our lives with the expectation that God is and does guide us. Jesus, in fact, has already established this in the previous sentiments of the model, this model prayer. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Now, to be led, let me be really clear, it means you need to submit to that leadership. This is a key point. Several years ago, in fact, a number of years ago now, about 15, uh, I, I was a youth pastor in southern Alberta. And each year, for a couple of years, I would take a group of young people and we'd go down to Mexico to do uh, missions work. So we'd work with a church that was down there. We often built a couple of houses in about 10 days span of time. We'd also run children's programs. We would do, uh, we'd cook food in the morning for a number of people in the community who didn't have money for food. We'd run different programs through the mornings and the evenings and then build houses through the day. Now, in going down, the very first year that I went down there, we did a crossing. If you've ever been down to the southern U.S., southern California, uh, San Diego is on the north side, the U.S. side of the American-Mexico border. On the south side would be, on the Mexican side would be uh, Tijuana. And that's the border where we crossed, and then our plan was to drive uh, to a place called San Felipe, which is on the eastern side of the Baja Peninsula, and that's where we were doing our, our teamwork together. It was about a three-and-a-half-hour drive from the border. Now, there was several youth groups that I'd organized to come with us, and so several youth pastors, and we had multiple vehicles, multiple 15-passenger vans, and uh, myself and another one of the youth pastors were the ones who did all the organizing and planned the trip out, and we were to lead the convoy down there. Now, one of the youth pastors that was there decided that he felt it was fun if he led for a little while and decided the right point to do that was right after we crossed the border crossing in Tijuana. And he decided to speed in front of our van and did so right at the point where there was an intersection break-off and the highway broke off. 
Their van took a different direction and their three and a half hour drive turned into about a 16 hour drive to get to our location. There is an importance about Jesus says, or Jesus says we are to pray, do not lead us. Again, with that is the principle that if we want to not be led into evil in our lives, we need to have and listen to someone else who leads us. When it comes to facing the presence of evil in your life, if you want to navigate the minefields that are set against you, you can't be the one in charge. You need to trust and follow another leader. Jesus tells us to pray for God to not lead us into temptation. Now, this clearly brings up a question. Why would we need to pray this? Does God lead us to temptation? Does God actually tempt us? If you have your Bibles, you can keep your finger where you are, but you could flip over to the book of James, which is a, a little bit further to the right in your Bible in the New Testament. In James 1, 13, 15, or I'm just going to read actually just from verse 13 at this point. says this, And remember... When you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. How many of you have ever done that in your life? Somebody's like, God, why are you doing this to me? Do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. God does not tempt anyone. That's clear in this verse. But one thing that is clear, however, is by the reality of temptation in our lives is that God does allow us to be tempted. Again, even for his own son, Jesus, we see that God allowed for temptation to come into his life. Now, with that, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we receive this promise. And if you've been in church for a long time, maybe you've heard this verse before. It says this, God will not allow the temptation, that temptation in your life, to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So God does allow temptation in our life, but we see also in 1 Corinthians here that, that God doesn't allow for temptation in our life to be beyond what we can stand. Now, this verse is a great promise, a much-needed one, a true gift of God's grace that we need to hold on to. With that, in my years in the church, I'm concerned that many Christians have misused this promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 regarding the limits of temptation, essentially looking at it as a sort of safety net. It's, it's kind of this attitude of, I don't need to worry. God won't ever put me in over my head because God will never give me what I can't handle. It's kind of like the equivalent. My, my son, I think I mentioned this back in the spring, but my son has gotten into a video game character, Super Mario. He loves Super Mario. And you ever played those old video games? I have, clearly I don't play a lot of games. So I have to refer back to the early 90s and 80s with all my video game references. But I think it's still the same today. But you got the star power where it's like Mario can't be hurt. He can hit everything. All the bad guys can touch him. Nothing can hurt him. And that's kind of what we look like. It's like, okay, this verse in 1 Corinthians is our star power. I am invincible. Nothing can touch me. And so we live that way, thinking, oh, well, I'm a Christian. God will never be able to tempt me beyond. But that's not actually what this verse is saying. It is not saying that you somehow have a superstar ability and are a superior human to every other person on earth now. We are not to be careless and lazy simply because we think nothing can affect us. This promise in 1 Corinthians is not speaking to our own human abilities to resist temptation 
but rather the supernatural ability God can provide us through the Holy Spirit to resist temptation. The reality is, is that every day I will be tempted to do something that brings shame both to God and to myself. We are to pray that God wouldn't lead us to temptation, that he would give supernatural power to resist. This prayer reminds me of my utter desperation for God to help me to avoid the pitfalls of the temptation that surrounds me. Jesus models in this prayer the need for us to live with humility, to acknowledge that I am susceptible to temptation and I need his supernatural help. For those of you who have struggled with addictions in your life or you have those in your life who you walk alongside who struggle with addictions, you've maybe seen this play out with their addiction. I'm good. I've got this under control. I don't need help. I'm invincible. I can handle this. It's the worst position to be at. It seems like the more prideful, strong thing to say, but it's the exact opposite. Versus recognizing, I know that I have a problem and I need to be aware and I need help. Now again, this brings another question. Why does God even allow temptation in our lives? This word temptation that is used in this verse is is the Greek word that means experiment, trial, attempt, or proving. Now in the New Testament, this word is rarely, if ever, meant to say an enticement to sin. But rather, it is a testing. Theologian J.R. Packer says this of temptation, as Jesus states it here, it is a test or trial. That is a situation that reveals how far you are able to go right and avoid going wrong. God does and must test us regularly to prove what is in us and to show how far we have come. His purpose is wholly constructive. We see throughout scripture Example after example of how God has done this in the lives of saints before us. Genesis chapter 22 is a great example as we see the story of Abraham. Abraham who waits his entire life for a promise of a son and has a son with his wife Sarah in his very old age where he'd be, typically they'd be beyond being able to conceive. And they have a son Isaac and they treasure this son. And as Isaac grows up as a young man, God then tells Abraham to go up on a mountain and to make a sacrifice. And he is led going up to the mountain as we read the story to believe that he is potentially gonna have to give his son Isaac up as as the sacrifice. It gets to the point of putting the laws together, getting the sacrifice ready and getting his son there. And then God at the last moment provides a ram to be the sacrifice as God put a trial, a test in front of Isaac to show where he was at, to test his loyalty to God. These are the temptations, the trials that we face. For those of you who work out, who go to the gym, who are not me, because I clearly don't, but for those of you who do, you know that muscle is only built through exercise, and exercise itself is actually the tearing of muscle fibers that when they heal, regenerate and grow stronger and larger. This is a great correlation. Romans four, or sorry, Romans five, three to five says this: We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Again, the same word. For we know 
that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Healthy temptation that God allows in our lives brings positive growth. If I can use one other quick illustration, because maybe the gym illustration doesn't work well, but for those of you who are gardeners, you know that you water and you need sunshine for your plants to grow. And lots of sunshine is fantastic for the growth of plants, but sunshine is good for plants only if they have roots. So too, trials bring blessings. They bring strength for those who are rooted in Christ. Now, if temptation or trials are beneficial, then why should we ask to be spared of temptation? Again, I told you, this this little passage makes me confused. Why are we praying, God, lead us not into temptation? Okay, so we've got temptation isn't necessarily bad. It can be good. It can be a trial, and that can produce things. But then why should we be praying for God not to lead us into those temptations, those trials? Very quickly, first... Whenever God tests us, it's for our good. But with that, Satan, or otherwise known in in the Bible as the tempter, tries to exploit those same situations for our ruin. From his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus himself knew how Satan was so cunning and warns us not to underestimate him. Secondly, The instruction to ask to be spared from temptation comes from the proper position of humility. The knowledge of our own proven weakness and vulnerability compels us to cry in humility and self-distrust, Lord, if possible, please, no temptation. I don't want to risk damaging myself and dishonoring you by failing. It puts us in that proper position of how we approach things. We don't have that star mentality of I'm invincible. No, I am completely fallible. God, I need your help. When you are conscious, not conscious of temptation, pray, God, lead me not into temptation. Help me to see my blind spots. Help me to see the things that will pull me away so I can avoid them. And when you are conscious of the sin that we are susceptible to, we pray, God, deliver us from evil. Depending on your version of the Bible, it will say deliver us from evil or the evil one. Trying to describe evil is similar to trying to describe darkness. Darkness is simply the absence of light. A blocking or manipulation of light. Evil is simply good perverted. It is a manipulation of something God has made good. Now, like many in our world, some of you may scoff already and you already are wanting to check out because this very idea of evil, this concept of evil, you don't even agree with that. Isn't evil just simply relative? A matter of perspective? If you have a war, one side of the the battle will consider the other side evil. But if you go to the other side, they're going to see the reverse, and that side is evil. In the spring, we had the Battle of Alberta. People in Calgary thought Edmonton was evil, and they were right. But people in Edmonton thought Calgary was evil. 
you're not allowed to talk in church. <laughs> or if we can do something that's maybe a little more unifying, for those who, of us who are Canadians and we watch a Canada-US hockey game for gold, we see a picture like this and we think, oh, wonderful, championship, glory, this is great. What about the perspective of the American girl that's standing there? How rude that they're celebrating during a time of such sorrow and struggle. Isn't it just a matter of perspective? Listen, we have varying definitions of where lines are blurred. But the truth is we all believe that there is an evil, even those in our world who say they don't. Different cultures produce different values. Yet across cultures, we see base moral laws that are consistent. And with that, actions and motives that are seen as wrong and evil, as well as good. If you act benevolent towards any, someone else, if you give to someone else, that is always seen as a positive action, no matter what culture you're from. Vice versa, there, if you injure someone, if you murder someone, if you rape someone in any culture, even though it happens, it is seen as a bad, evil, wrong behavior. Why do we universally consider these things wrong and evil? Why does murder break the law of common human behavior across cultures? Because there is a universal lawgiver who has imprinted in us a basic understanding and value for human life. I contend the God of the Bible is that lawgiver and the one who has imprinted those natural unspoken laws in your DNA and mine. And so even though culturally we can have different values and different belief systems, the base of their being right and wrong is imprinted right into the DNA of humanity. Now, according to the Bible, we see evil as defined in three ways. Evil is the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we speak of the world, the world is the enemy around us. It's the evil around us. All that is turned away from God that we see around us in the world. This is the bad stuff that can happen to us. The flesh is the enemy within us. Not the body per se, not speaking simply of your physical body, but the evil desires that come from within each of us. This is the bad stuff that can happen through or from us. Going back to that passage in James that we read from earlier, but reading verses 14 and 15 in James chapter one, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful action, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. The flesh. And then thirdly, the world, the flesh, the third form of evil is the devil or the evil one. The Bible talks about the existence of the devil. When it comes to the talk of the devil, C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall, uh, can fall about the devil and demons. One is to believe in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, meaning Satan and his demons, are equally pleased by both errors. For many, the devil is a made-up mythical creature with pointy horns, holding a trident and wearing a red leotard. Sounds like someone you might meet in downtown Edmonton around 3 a.m. But what does the Bible actually teach us about the devil? Well, first of all, it teaches that he is very much real. 
He is a fallen angel who chose to rebel against God, leading one third of the angels in heaven to go with him. John 8.44 also tells us that he was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a liar and a murderer. 1994, the Rwanda genocide happened. It was a planned campaign of mass murder in Rwanda that occurred over the course of some 100 days in April to July 1994. The genocide was conceived by extremist elements of Rwanda's majority Hutu population who planned to kill minority Tutsi population and anyone who opposed those genocidal intentions. It is estimated that some 200,000 Hutu, spurred on by propaganda from various media outlets, participated in the genocide of more, more than 800,000 civilians, primarily Tutsi, but also moderate Hutu, were killed during the campaign. As many as two million Rwandans fled the country during or immediately after the genocide. Canadian Lieutenant General Rome, uh, Romeo Dallaire was sent in the mid-1990s to oversee the peacekeeping mission in Rwanda. After his time in Rwanda, he was quoted as stating this, I know there is a God because in Rwanda I shook hands with the devil. I've seen him, I've smelled him, and I've touched him. I know the devil exists and therefore I know there is a God. The Bible is clear that Satan is real, he is powerful, and he is a force of deception and destruction in our world. But the Bible is also clear about what Satan, the devil, is not. He is not omnipotent meaning all-powerful. No, all he is not omnipresent, meaning he is all places at all times. He is not omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. He is not God, or even close to being God. He is not God's brother. He is a created being. And in comparison with God, he is a clear loser and overmatched in every possible way. Again, Satan's two mean tricks are to make you believe he doesn't exist, or to fool you to believe that he is so big and powerful not a force that you could never oppose, and you might as well just be susceptible to him. 1 John 4.4 4 says, The Spirit who lives in you, meaning the Spirit of God, his Holy Spirit, who when we invite Christ into our lives and submit to him as the leader of our life, and the forgiver of our sin, is greater than the Spirit who lives in the world, meaning the devil. Now it may have you scratching your head, at the choice of Jesus' words then, if this is so true that God is so much more powerful than Satan, then why is the words deliver us from the evil one? Why not destroy or dominate the evil one? Deliver us. Again, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Yes, but he who is in the world, Satan, is greater than you. That is why Jesus instructed us to pray not for dominance, which would build a prideful bravado amongst some Christians in their own ability to fight and, and go up against demons, but for deliverance. Were it not for the protective power of the Holy Spirit and the work of angels, I don't believe a single Christian nor a single human being would be alive today. We daily rely not on our own power, but that of God's. Hence, we pray, deliver us from evil. In Mark 9, 14 to 29, we see a story of Jesus sending out his disciples to do work on his behalf. 
And in that story, they were unable to exercise a, derm, a, a demon that had possessed an individual. These were Jesus' own disciples, Peter, James, John. The experience of these great men is a powerful reminder to us. The spiritual realm is very much real and active and alive. Evil and the evil one are very powerful, much more powerful than us. We truly rely on Christ, his authority, and his power for victory. Again, this is a call for humility and a call and a reminder to seek God for his power. An admitting of our absolute dependence of God. The death and resurrection of Jesus has defeated Satan. Because of Jesus, sin and death do not have the final victory over those who are Christ's. One day, Satan will be completely destroyed and will be stripped of all his power. But for now, we are to pray daily. God, deliver us from evil. As children of God, evil is not something we are to fear. Psalm 23, verse 4 says this. If you are familiar with Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. We are to request for deliverance because that is the call to live a God-centered life. To recognize we can't deliver ourselves, but we moment by moment require God's mercy, direction, and power. Romans 6, 16 says this, Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. There's only two choices. It's not the message of our world that you are free on your own. You are a slave. I'm sorry if that's news to you today, but it really is true. And if you reflect on your own life, you'll recognize it. It's why there's things that you want to do that you can't do, and there's stuff you've been trying not to do, there's been addictions that's been in your life, there's been things that have controlled you, whether it's the opinions of others, whether it's substances that have controlled you, whether it's addictions to pornography that have controlled you, that you can't fight on your own. Why? Because you are not free on your own, you are a slave. And you have two choices, you are either a slave to sin, or you are a slave to Christ, which brings freedom and a life of righteousness. P.T. Forsyth has this quote that I love. The first duty of every soul is not to find its freedom, but its master. Who is the master of your soul? Who is leading you today? Lord, lead us. Not into temptation. Deliver us from evil, the evil within me, the evil around me in the world that would want to impact me, and the evil from the evil one. Jesus giving us this prayer itself is a promise that if we seek deliverance from evil, we will find it. I'm going to ask if you will stand with me as we're going to close in a time of some reflective prayer, and it's going to take just a couple minutes and if you're like, I don't really do prayer, I haven't really prayed before, say okay. 
going to walk you through today. But again, as we go through this, the point of this prayer was not to memorize it and just to say it over and over again. This is a model for prayer for how we are to interact with our God. Because prayer itself is conversation, relationship with God. So what I'm going to ask you to do is just for a few moments, we're going to be really quiet in here. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes if you're comfortable with that. Now that's not because you can't pray with your eyes open, because you can. Prayer is talking with God. But closing our eyes oftentimes helps us just to focus, not get distracted. If you're like me, super ADD, getting, oh, oh, that person moved, just helps us to focus, okay? So if you're comfortable with it, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. The start of this prayer was our Father in heaven. So just for a few moments right now, I want you just to talk to God. And I want to remind you that God is not an overlord. He is a Father, a loving caring father and you are his kid and just to thank him that he loves you he is your father in heaven he is God and he is worthy of worship so as we start our conversation with him you just do this in your own mind just share with him tell him who he is and thank him for it God thank you that you are mighty. You are bigger than me, and you know more than I do. That you see the things I don't. That you love me. That you are God, and I am not. Today, I want you just now, in in an honest conversation with God, there are things that you already know in your life that are you know are evil, things that are, they're not just temptations, things that you've allowed into your life. Maybe it's the influence of the world around you. Maybe it's stuff that you've had anger inside of you. I want you just to confess that to him right now. Bring those things to him. Just repent of them, which means you tell him of it, you hand them to him, you ask for his forgiveness. And then we work to turn away from that. So God, for each one that's sharing those things right now, I know that you hear. Pray for that forgiveness. And now as we pray, I just want you to to ask this question. God, are there areas in my life that I'm blind to of temptation. Maybe there's safeguards I need to put up. Are there weak points in my life that I need to put boundaries on that are or are going to lead me into doing things that are against what you want? I want you just to ask him that question and to listen. The way God speaks is he might bring something into your mind. He might bring a picture of something. There might be a word that just starts to resonate or a situation that suddenly comes to your mind. Just want to give a moment for that. If it does, then I want you just to ask for, God, what would be the action that I could do to take a step to put a boundary up for that temptation? How can you lead me? Give me guidance and wisdom for how I can be led away 
from that temptation. God, thank you that you lead us not into temptation, but you deliver us from evil. Thank you that every day you want to lead us. Every day you call us and you show us how to navigate this world that can be tricky. I pray for each one as they've done that. God, I pray that after the conclusion of our time together, that they'd write that down and they'd move forward this week in that. This morning, if there's someone here who just has never even established that relationship and they just know they have that desire to have a leader, God, it's as simple in their words as believing in their heart and confessing with their mouth. And if that's you today, either in person or online, it's as simple as saying a prayer like this. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus who came to die for my sin so that I could be free from the sin that brings death. I no longer want to be a slave to sin, but I want to serve you, God, in every way. Forgive my sin. Be the leader of my life, I pray. For all of us, God, lead us this week more and more into what you desire us to be, we pray, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, say amen. Amen. If you... uh, If you prayed this morning, again, I'd really like you to just move forward practically. If God put something on your heart, I want you to write that down and take that safeguard and start moving forward into that. The life of a Christian is not theoretical, it's practical. So I believe for some of you, God gave you something really practical today that you can step forward in that he's saying, hey, you need to put a guard up here and I want you to take a different route. Move forward in that. If any of you want to chat afterwards, want someone to pray with you, I'd love to do that. Pastor Shaden's going to come at this time.